It was a Saturday morning, and Company F of the 27th Indiana, 3rd Brigade, 1st Division, 12th Corps of the Union Army of the Potomac, went into bivouac near Frederick, Maryland. In pursuit of Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army north of the Potomac River, Corporal Barton W. Mitchell was relieved that at least they were campaigning in friendly territory. As he settled in to get some rest, he noticed a bulky envelope lying nearby in the tall grass. Curiosity aroused, he picked it up, and rather than the three cigars which the paper was wrapped around, his eyes focused on the paper's heading. It read, Headquarters, Army of Northern Virginia, Special Orders Number 191. Dated September the 9th, 1862, he read on, the order was addressed to Major General D.H. Hill, and in the text there were names that raised his eyebrows. Jackson, Longstreet, Stewart, and at the bottom, mighty words, by command of General R.E. Lee. The signature at the bottom read R.H. Chilton, Assistant Adjutant General. Mitchell took his find to Sergeant John M. Bloss, who, understanding its importance, went with Mitchell to their company commander, Captain Peter Kopp. The find was sent on up to Colonel Silas Colgrove, commander of the 27th Indiana. Then deemed so important, Colgrove bypassed both brigade and division officers and went straight to the commander of the 12th Corps, Brigadier General Alpheus S. Williams. What he unbelievably held in his hands was Robert E. Lee's entire operational plan, and in it, the location of every major unit in his divided army. Forwarded to Army Commander Major General George B. McClellan, Lee's lost order number 191 made certain there would be a great battle in western Maryland, along the banks of a creek bearing an Algonquian name meaning swift-flowing stream. Indeed, what was to come on an Indian summer Wednesday triggered swift-flowing events. This is the story of the Battle of Sharpsburg, of Antietam, the bloodiest single day in the history of this nation, an engagement that moved popular historian Bruce Catton to write that September the 17th, 1862, was a day of sheer, unadulterated violence. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. By late morning, Lee's lost order was before George McClellan. Struck by his incredible good fortune, he threw up his hands and said, Now I know what to do. Shortly after, he added, Here is the paper with which if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. The only thing missing from Special Orders Number 191 were numbers, and perhaps that's why, instead of McClellan moving to destroy the divided wings of Lee's army, he, blessed with one of the greatest finds in military history, 
hesitated some 18 hours before his men received orders to respond, in large part because, thanks to faulty Union cavalry reconnaissance and intelligence, the Union commander estimated Lee's force at over 100,000 men. He was off some 60,000. Again, his demons resurfaced. Caution. Uncertainty. However, a few things were certain. Not only was Lee north of the Potomac, but out west, General Edmund Kirby Smith's Confederate Army was poised to threaten Frankfort, Kentucky. Braxton Bragg and his 34,000-man southern force was also on the march, north from Chattanooga, their destination also the Bluegrass State. In Washington City, the mood was black, so dark, First Lieutenant Charles Francis Adams, the great-grandson of one president and grandson of another, wrote his father, Mr. Lincoln's minister to England, Charles Francis Adams. Our ruler seemed to me to be crazy. The air of Washington seems thick with treachery. Our army seems in danger of utter demoralization. Everything is ripe for a terrible panic the end of which I cannot see or even imagine. It is my glimpse behind the scenes, the conviction that small men with selfish motives control the war without any central power to keep them in bounds, and that terrifies and discourages me. Evidently, the capitals of Europe felt similarly. In England, thanks to the Union blockade of the southern coast, Parliament was informed that 80,000 textile workers were without work. 370,000 more were on half-time. Also affected, in France, Napoleon III instructed his foreign minister to inquire of the English government if it does not believe that the moment has not arrived when the South should be recognized. Even Queen Victoria's Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, communicated would it not be time for us to consider addressing parties and recommend an arrangement based upon the basis of separation? Indeed, the 16th president was beside himself. For Lee and Confederate President Jefferson Davis, the Confederate summer offensive of 1862 presented dramatic opportunities. With Virginia and Tennessee cleared of major federal presence, farmers in both states could harvest crops. With Confederate invasion, northern peace factions found added weight to their agendas. Then, psychologically, it was one thing to support the war while it raged in the South, quite another when it was on northern soil. With Confederate troops operating in both Maryland and Kentucky, there was the possibility that secessionists in both states might stir. And then, perhaps the two most crucial potential consequences— Confederate incursion would wreak havoc for Mr. Lincoln and the Republicans in the coming November off-year congressional elections. And again, what might Southern military victories in the North mean for the elusive quest of European recognition? To Lee and Davis, all these possibilities, these gambles, were worth the risk. And so, on September the 4th, at White's Ford, the vanguard of the Army of Northern Virginia splashed north across the Potomac. Lee hoped his army might number some 50,000 men. However, there was the weighty question of invasion, 
and quite a few Southern soldiers, men particularly from Western North Carolina and South Carolina, had great problems with it. They volunteered to defend, but invasion was another matter. And so, while many splashed across singing, Maryland, my Maryland, hath Virginia called in vain, thousands simply slipped away. Incredibly, Lee's first invasion of the North was made with approximately 40,000 men. And it was a strange parade, if you will, this drive into Northern Territory. Both Brigadier John Bell Hood and Major General A.P. Hill entered Maryland under arrest. The two marched at the rear of their columns. Hill for running afoul of Stonewall Jackson's marching orders, and Hill for participating in a heated argument over captured ambulances after Second Manassas. Seeking relief from a badly blistered heel, Wing Commander James Longstreet entered Maryland wearing an old carpet slipper. The irony even included Robert E. Lee. Only days before, while holding the reins of his horse, Traveler, his mount shied and threw the general heavily to the ground. In his fall, he broke his right hand and severely sprained his left. He entered the state of Maryland in an ambulance. And once into the old line state, the bad karma spread to Jackson. Presented with a new horse by some fawning Marylanders, he mounted only to have the animal rear, throwing him to the ground and leaving him stunned and bruised. Despite it all, Lee's objective, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where a major bridge carried Pennsylvania railroad traffic across the Susquehanna. Lee hoped his line of march would also sever the B&O Railroad and thusly all communication west. Once near Harrisburg, Lee planned to turn his attention to either Philadelphia, Baltimore, or the nation's capital. Remember, only some 40,000 were making this bold move. On September the 6th, Confederate forces entered Frederick, Maryland, with strict orders not to rob or pillage. Three days later, Lee, in Special Orders Number 191, ordered Longstreet and 11,000 men to nearby Boonesboro. Stonewall Jackson was ordered to reduce two federal garrisons, one at Martinsburg and the other at Harper's Ferry. It was there at the confluence of the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers, 12,500 Union soldiers under Colonel Dixon S. Miles presented potential problems. There, they could threaten Lee's supply line and prove a major obstacle should Lee have to suddenly beat a retreat back into Virginia. There, beneath Bolivar, Maryland, and Loudoun Heights, Miles' Union troops sat like fish in a barrel. Sure enough, they were surrounded, and on the 15th, surrendered to Stonewall Jackson's force. That was welcome news to a Confederate army divided into as many as four separate columns. Meanwhile, McClellan, after, as we mentioned, an 18-hour delay, finally moved. He ordered attacks at Turner's Gap on South Mountain, where some 2,300 Confederates under D.H. Hill were ordered to stop any Union probe or attack. That came September the 14th the day before Harper's Ferry fell. Hill's small force was punished, but Hill thanks in large part to federal piecemeal attacks. 
With the cover of darkness, Hill pulled back and joined Lee's main force. McClellan had South Mountain, but he was 12 hours too late. Indeed, too late. For Lee, by the evening of the 14th, was aware something was amiss and was in the process of pulling his scattered forces together. He was so concerned that he considered calling off the planned invasion, but then the lightning bolt. Word reached him that Harper's Ferry had fallen. Despite the fact that 26 of his 40 brigades were in Harper's Ferry, he boldly decided to make a stand north of the Potomac. To do that, however, he needed Jackson, and so ordered him to join the main body, which was some 17 miles away, along a low ridge just west of a stream known as Antietam Creek. That night, the 15th, Jackson and his bedraggled columns moved out. Captain Edward Ripley, 9th Vermont, and Confederate prisoner of war, watched in amazement. He wrote, It was a weird, uncanny sight and drove sleep from my eyes. They were silent as ghosts, ruthless and rushing in their speed, ragged, earth-colored, disheveled and devilish, as though keen on the scent of hot blood. Their sliding dog trot was as though on snowshoes. The shuffle of their badly shod feet on the hard surface of the pike was so rapid as to be continuous, like a hiss of a great serpent. The spectral picture will never be effaced from my memory. Only A.P. Hill and his light division, Lee's largest, was left behind to handle the Union surrender. On Tuesday the 16th, an early morning mist shrouded the landscape near Sharpsburg, Maryland. There, Lee needed McClellan to be, well, McClellan. And McClellan complied. On the field, he had some 87,000 men. With Jackson still on the way, Lee's Confederate force totaled maybe 18,000. Yet on that day, McClellan, believing he was outnumbered, did nothing. That night, a light rain fell, and there was some skirmishing, distant thunder, if you will, for the storm that would break on the morrow. The next day, Wednesday, September the 17th, ironically the 75th anniversary of the ratification of the United States Constitution, the curtain rose on what would be a day unlike any other before or since. As the sun burned the mist away, so were simple landmarks with simple names revealed. The Dunker Church, Miller's Cornfield, the North, East, and West Woods, the Sunken Road, and the Rohrbach Bridge. The rural setting just east of Sharpsburg, population around 1,300, and named for Maryland Colonial Governor Horatio Sharp. Though he believed he was outnumbered, McClellan, despite little reconnaissance, planned to attack. He wanted to hit Lee's left and right simultaneously, and then, at the decisive moment, punch through the Confederate center. Lee's defensive line ran for four miles, as thin as it was, his left under Jackson, his center under D.H. Hill, and his right under James Longstreet. He had maybe, just maybe, 30,000 men. 
Around 6 a.m., McClellan's 1st Corps under Major General Joseph Hooker began the bloodiest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere. The objective for the 8,600 men of the 1st Corps was one mile ahead, a plateau just east of the whitewashed German Baptist Brethren Meeting House, the Dunker Church. Defending 7,700 men of Jackson's command who had, after their exhausting march from Harper's Ferry, arrived around noon the day before. From Joseph Poffenberger's farm, Hooker's Corps emerged and pushed toward David R. Miller's 30-acre, head-high, ripening cornfield. Spotted as they moved forward, four Confederate batteries and Jackson's infantry opened up. Shot, shell, and lead ripped into Hooker's columns. Abram Duryea's 1,100 New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians were some of the first to enter the leafy maze of the cornfield. As they did, they were blasted by Georgians who were just south of the field. Their fire so intense that Duryea's men retired only 30 minutes after first contact with the enemy, one-third of them down as casualties. Into that 30-acre field that lined the Hagerstown Pike, units from both armies were repeatedly thrown in to either attack, flank, counterattack, make a stand, or retreat. At about 6.30, in went Brigadier General John Gibbon's 2,200-man Black Hat Brigade. That unit included Major Rufus R. Dawes in the 6th Wisconsin. They, too, ran into posted Georgians, and Dawes wrote, as we appeared at the edge of the corn, a long line of men in butternut and gray rose up from the ground. Simultaneously, the hostile battle lines opened a tremendous fire upon each other. Men, I cannot say fell, they were knocked out of the ranks by dozens. Captain Werner von Bachel of Company F, 6th Wisconsin, had a pet Newfoundland dog that was his constant companion. And yes, accompanied him that morning in the attack. When that officer was mortally wounded, his dog refused to leave him. After the battle, survivors of the regiment returned and found the lifeless animal lying across his master's fallen body. As Gibbon's brigade pushed forward, they drove the Georgians back, but in doing so exposed their right flank. And that flank was smashed when 1,150 Louisianans under Brigadier General William Stark struck Gibbon's exposed flank. Firing through post and rail fences that flanked the Hagerstown Pike, they poured in lead no more than 30 yards away. With Jackson's line tested, Lee, who was near the front, sent reinforcements from his center and right. At about 7 that morning, Jackson sent for an officer who on the march into Maryland was under arrest, John Bell Hood. Restored to command, his Texas brigade had been cooking hoe cakes, their first hot meal in days. Mad as hornets for the interruption, they rolled into the cornfield like thunder driving Federals before them. And yet, one unit, the first Texas, slipped the bridle. Out in front of the rest of the brigade, they ran headlong into two brigades under Major General George Gordon Meade, who had his men lying prostrate. As the first Texas drew near, men in blue rose and levied a concentrated blast. The volume of fire ravaged the Texans. In about 20 minutes, the regiment lost eight color bearers and their regimental flag. 
four of every five men were down, 82.3% casualties. Later, after his brigade was beaten back, Hood was asked the whereabouts of his brigade. With a mixture of anger and grief, he blurted, Dead on the field, sir. Simply stated, Miller's cornfield was a bloodbath. Taken and retaken some 14 times in three and a half hours with staggering casualties. The Louisiana Tigers under Brigadier General Harry Hayes lost 323 of 500 men in about 15 minutes. They suffered 61% casualties. Every regimental officer in the unit either killed or wounded. The 12th Massachusetts lost 224 of 334, 67%, the highest rate of any federal regiment that day. One ironic casualty was a member of the 27th Indiana, Corporal Barton W. Mitchell, the man whose discovery of Lost Order Number 191 ensured there would be a battle along the banks of the Antietam. So, too, was wounded Sergeant John M. Bloss. Hooker's initial attack repulsed. He had gone in with 8,600 men. 2,600 were down. Jackson's line had been battered but held. Lee continued to reinforce his beleaguered lieutenant, and that was needed for a little after 8 a.m. McClellan's 12th Corps under Major General Joseph K. F. Mansfield prepared to advance from out of the East Woods. 7,200 men were to push into the vortex of horror that was Miller's cornfield. As Hooker's men fell back, Mansfield made final preparations for the attack of his corps. As he personally deployed the 10th Maine Regiment, a Confederate bullet found him. Hit in the chest, it was a mortal wound. After 40 years as an engineer and yearning for a combat assignment, the 58-year-old Union general died the next day in a field hospital. His combat command lasted all of two days. One participant in the area bears note, with special permission by Abraham Lincoln to be on the battlefield, Clara Barton was there. It was her first fight, and she recounted, A man lying upon the ground asked for drink. I stooped to give it, and having raised him with my right hand, was holding the cup to his lips with my left. When I felt a sudden twitch of the loose sleeve of my dress, the poor fellow sprang from my hands and fell back quivering in the agonies of death. A ball had passed between my body and the right arm which supported him cutting through the sleeve and passing through his chest from shoulder to shoulder. And another soldier to whom Clara Barton would have related, a soldier by the name of Franklin Thompson of Company F, 2nd Michigan, who in reality was Sarah Emma Edmonds. A native Canadian, she had escaped a domineering father and moved in with an aunt in Michigan. There she assumed a male's role and sold Bibles as Franklin Thompson. When war came, she enlisted, and here at Antietam came upon a wounded Confederate soldier. According to her account, it was a most dramatic moment. That fallen Confederate soldier was also a disguised female, and though in great pain, immediately saw through Edmund's disguise. 
Upon the Confederate soldier's death, Edmonds protected her identity by burying her. The charge of Mansfield's 12th Corps was much like Hooker's, piecemeal and without support. All morning long, the same. Units attacked and in doing so, flanks presented and counterattacks drove them back. After the repulse of McClellan's 12th Corps, now moved 15,200 men of the 2nd Corps. Soldiers under 65-year-old Edwin Bull Sumner. Two of his three divisions pushed forward, one under Major General John Sedgwick and the other Brigadier General William French. In their advance around 8.30 a.m., there was confusion. French's men fell behind which meant that Sedgwick's division stormed ahead alone. Their mass drove into Jackson's left in the West Woods. Once again, his line almost came apart, but without French's support, Sedgwick's division entered the wooded area with its left exposed. And it was at this critical moment that Confederate troops from Lee, center, and right entered the fray. With their arrival, and again, without the support of William French's Union Division, Sedgwick's men were doomed. Their advance suddenly turned into a human holocaust. Confederate units hit them from three sides. Fired on from front and both flanks, Sedgwick's advance went to pieces. The change was sudden. Ambushed in the West Woods, 2,200 men were cut down in 20 minutes. It was about 9.30, and a lull loomed over this blasted piece of real estate. In this early morning phase of action, Jackson's men had mauled McClellan's 1st, 12th, and 1-3rd of the 2nd Corps, yet his men had also been severely tested. To aid them, Lee had shifted three-fourths of his army. His center and right had been stripped, but he got away with it, for no federal attacks advanced on those stripped areas. Savage fighting and carnage even then overwhelmed even the battle-tested veterans of both armies. The scene, as one Union soldier described it, a landscape turned red. In the 40 acres that comprised the West Woods and Miller's Cornfield, there were 12,000 casualties in three and a half hours of combat. And there would be seven and a half more hours of sheer, unadulterated violence. Now, around 10.30 to 10.45, the fighting shifted slightly south. Now, earlier, remember that Sumner's two-division attack came apart. While Sedgwick's men were ravaged in the ambush at the West Wood, French's drive had lagged behind. And in doing so, in the smoke and confusion of battle, his attack veered toward Lee's center. One unit, the 132nd Pennsylvania, marched past the Muma farm and through William Roulette's farm lot. As they did, one Confederate artillery round slammed into a row of Roulette's beehives. Not only did these Pennsylvanians have to deal with the hail of Confederate bullets from Lee's center, but now angry honeybees. Still, they and others bore down on Lee's center, which defenders in butternut and gray hunkered down in an eroded farm lane. 
there in a sunken road, some 7,000 Confederates awaited the advance of 12,000 Union troops. In command of the position was the man who led the stubborn defense at South Mountain. It was Daniel Harvey Hill, who was Stonewall Jackson's brother-in-law. Pessimistic, outspoken, his ties linked him with North and South Carolina. Frequently in pain due to a spinal ailment, he hated Yankees with a passion, and for the next several hours, he would need every bit of that passion. Earlier in the day, Lee had ridden past Georgians, Alabamans, and North Carolinians who were all posted in that sunken road. Asked if they could hold their position, Colonel John B. Gordon, the commander of the 6th Alabama, spoke for all. The men are going to stay here, General, till the sun goes down or victory is won. Little did he realize how his promise would soon be tested. Just as the Union attacks were about to be made, a scene to note. Lee, Hill, and Longstreet conferred, and aware that clustered men on horseback drew enemy fire, Longstreet asked Hill to dismount, but Hill refused. A testy Longstreet offered, if you insist on riding up there and drawing the fire, give us a little interval. Almost on cue, there was a white puff of smoke from a Federal gun over in the North Woods, and Longstreet blandly stated, there is a shot for you. Three or four seconds later, incredibly, that shot fired a mile or so away took off the front two legs of Hill's horse, dropping the poor animal upon stumps, and left the Confederate general precariously perched on top, but unscathed. There was another incident worth reporting, and that included Lee, who rode up on a part of the Rock Bridge artillery. One artilleryman, begrimed with black powder and sweat, approached him. Lee stared at the young man until the artillerist said, Sir, don't you know me? It was Robert E. Lee, Jr., Lee's youngest son, who asked if the battered unit was going to be sent back into battle. The man who once said, Duty is the most sublime word in the English language, answered, Yes, my son, you all must do what you can to help drive these people back. It was about 10.45 in the morning, and Lee's center was about to be challenged. The first three Union regiments that drove upon Hill's position were the 1st Delaware, 5th Maryland, and 4th New York. Protected by their eroded roadbed, these three Federal regiments were riddled by Confederate fire, but wave after wave of attack followed. One in particular was Major General Israel Richardson's division. His push toward the sunken road began between 10.45 and 11. His second brigade deserves mention. It was led by Brigadier General Thomas Francis Marr, a former Irish revolutionist in his native land. He had been condemned to death for his part in the failed Irish Rebellion of 1848. Sentence commuted, he was banished to Tasmania. Four years later, in 1852, he escaped from prison and found his way to New York City. When troops were being gathered, he recruited the 63rd, 69th, 88th New York, and 29th Massachusetts. Together, 
They were tabbed the Irish Brigade. On this day, the man who was responsible for introducing the green, white, and orange tricolor that became Ireland's national flag may well have led, well, inebriated. His unit was punished. The 63rd and 69th New York lost around 60% of their men. Indeed, Hill's Confederates blunted federal attack after attack, but as time went on, federal numbers began to tell. The man who earlier in the day promised Lee that the position would be held, Colonel John B. Gordon, was still there. In the face of repeated Union assaults, and in the space of about 15 minutes, he took a bullet to his right calf, right thigh, left arm, left shoulder, and finally through his face. Unconscious, he was taken to the rear, and unbelievably, nine months later, he led troops at Gettysburg. Yet on this day, as federal pressure built on several fronts along the sunken road, Confederate casualties intensified. The man who took command of Gordon, 6th Alabama, Lieutenant Colonel J.N. Lightfoot, went to his brigade commander, asked what to do, and was told to return and refuse his flank. Lightfoot returned, but he had misunderstood the order. Instead, before his regiment, he in a loud voice shouted, 6th Alabama, about face forward march. A gap appeared in the Confederate defense and it proved to be fatal. The 61st and 64th New York saw it, poured into the lane, and all of a sudden the sunken road which once offered protection now served as a yawning grave for Confederate defenders. Lee Center had been breached. As Confederates raced to the rear, Wing Commander James Longstreet saw the danger. His own staff served two cannons, and as Federals now filled the sunken road and made effort to pursue, Longstreet believed, as he put it, the end of the Confederacy was in sight. Back in the grisly sunken road, now a bloody lane, the story of Colonel Charles C. Tew bears repeating. In command of Brigadier General George B. Anderson's North Carolina Brigade, after that officer had been mortally wounded, Tew was struck in the left temple and the projectile exited out his right. Left behind in the Confederate retreat, an Ohioan saw two and believed him dead. He hoped to make a trophy of the sword which the Confederate officer had lying across his knees. As the Buckeye made contact with the sword, the horribly wounded two with the last remaining act of strength jerked the sword back toward his body, then relaxed and died. Only one more Union drive was required to break Lee's army in two. But that drive needed an order. And the man who could make it, George McClellan, was at his headquarters some two miles away. There he had available his 5th Corps, which numbered 10,300 men, and just north the 6th Corps, which numbered some 12,000. Yet still believing himself outnumbered, McClellan refused to pull the trigger. And so the mid-morning phase of the battle ended. The fight at Lee Center lasted two and a half hours. Union casualties numbered just under 3,000. Confederate casualties were at 2,600, 30% of those engaged. 
Here, McClellan had a chance to grab all the glory he wanted. But the moment passed. Now another lull, and the battle shifted south once more. Some mile or two away, there stood the Rohrbach Bridge, or the Lower Bridge, which spanned Antietam Creek. It was supposed to have been crossed by federal troops around 9 or 9.30 that morning. Yes, that was hours ago. This part of the battlefield had been entrusted to McClellan's friend, Major General Ambrose E. Burnside. The commanding general had hoped Burnside would cross Antietam Creek via the Rohrbach Bridge and attack Lee's right while forces hammered Lee's left. That never materialized, thanks largely to Union confusion and in part to Confederates who manned elevated protected positions just above the bridge. The 2nd and 20th Georgia were there. They had some 400 men posted and they were under former General Supreme Court Justice Colonel Henry J. Benning. These men had been charged with bottling up some 12,000 men of the Ninth Corps, and they did that exceedingly well. Much to McClellan's chagrin, several attempts to storm the bridge failed, and that unraveled Little Mac's timetable. One may ask why the Ninth Corps did not wade through the creek, in large part because the water there was some four to five feet deep, too demanding to make it across under fire. In short, to take the bridge, it had to be stormed. A frustrated McClellan demanded the bridge be taken, and one officer, Brigadier General Edward Ferraro, created motivation. The pre-war dance instructor went before the 51st New York and 51st Pennsylvania and made a rousing speech. But it seems the Pennsylvanians wanted more than words. Disciplined recently, their punishment had been the removal of their whiskey ration. Now sensing an opportunity, one Pennsylvanian asked if they attacked, would Ferraro restore their whiskey ration? He thought about it and thundered, yes, by God. So around 12.30 and some three hours late, two Union batteries laid down enfilading fire upon the Confederates while the two regiments, numbering some 670 men, stormed the bridge. The Georgians, physically exhausted, flanked, and low on munitions, fell back. It was about one in the afternoon. In position to strike Lee's badly stripped right, Burnside had a supreme opportunity but burned some two hours refitting, resupplying, and reorganizing. Finally, the drive to crush Lee's right began around 3.15 in the afternoon. To counter some 12,500 men of the Federal Ninth Corps, Lee had fewer than 2,800 men under the command of 37-year-old South Carolinian David R. Jones. Before a three-quarter-of-a-mile federal battlefront, Jones' men grudgingly fell back. Alas, like every other federal attack that entire day, the Federal Ninth Corps went in unsupported. Still, the weight of numbers was such that Union troops now threatened Lee's very headquarters back in Sharpsburg, and therefore his line of retreat. Then came the thing from which stories become legend. 
With Lee personally trying to rally troops, he looked off to the south and saw two columns of approaching troops. To a passing battery, he called to an officer who had a telescope. What troops are those? That officer looked at one column and reported, they are flying the United States flag. Lee asked of the other column and had the answer returned, sir, they are flying the Virginia and Confederate flags. Lee nodded. It was A.P. Hill and his famed light division. Roused at 6.30 that morning and on the road by 8 a.m., Lee's largest division executed a man-killing forced march from Harper's Ferry to Sharpsburg. They covered 17 miles in eight hours. Though exhausted and spent, they shook themselves from column into battle lines and around 3.45 struck the exposed left flank of the Ninth Corps. The last card for the Army of Northern Virginia had just been played. There was nobody else. George McClellan, who had not committed a full one-third of his army, refused to answer. By 4.30, McClellan's Ninth Corps was on the defensive and suffering 2,350 casualties fell back toward Antietam Creek. With a merciful fall of darkness, the battle sputtered out after 12 hours of unprecedented violence. The great and terrible battle of Antietam or Sharpsburg was over. Incredibly, the next day, Lee defiantly held his position and offered battle. McClellan did nothing. That evening of the 18th, Lee decided to retreat. McClellan did offer pursuit, but those who did were punished because it was carried out so haphazardly. The great fight ran essentially from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. During those 12 hours, Lee's men narrowly averted disaster countless times, and McClellan fumbled away opportunity time after time. With Lee safely back into Virginia, the Army of the Potomac bivouacked amidst the wrecked landscape, and now came the grisly work of gathering the wounded and burying the dead. Amidst the shattered battlefield, one northern officer counted more than 200 dead southerners in a 500-foot stretch of the sunken road, soon to be renamed Bloody Lane. Another Union soldier examined a body which was found draped over a fence to the rear of Bloody Lane and counted that it had been hit by 57 bullets. For surgeons in field hospitals, day blended into night and day again. They toiled beyond human endurance. Even these physicians and their assistants were not immune to the killing and wounding. For example, one physician in the 20th Massachusetts was killed during the battle. His name, Dr. Edward Revere, the grandson of the famed Boston patriot Paul Revere. The butcher's bill for the battle, 2,108 dead for those in blue, 9,540 wounded, 753 missing, a total of 12,401, 25% of those who went into action. For Lee and the Confederates, 1,546 dead, 7,752 wounded, and 1,018 missing, 10,316, 31%.
Even men with stars on their shoulders or collars suffered. Nine Union and nine Confederate generals had become casualties. The combined total? Just under 23,000 men. A number that needs perspective. Union casualties during that 12-hour period alone were double the number of American casualties at D-Day 82 years later. Total casualties? Four times more. Even more sobering, the 23,000 casualties were more than the American Revolution, War of 1812, and the Mexican War combined in 12 hours. In 12 hours at Antietam, 1,916 casualties every hour, 32 every minute, one every two seconds. And yet, after such bloodletting, the battle was a tactical draw. Yet George McClellan thought it had been a decisive victory and informed Washington as such. It might have been had he been bold on several occasions. If he had moved aggressively after finding the lost order. If he had attacked one day earlier at Antietam. If he had better coordinated his attacks the day of the fight. If, instead of holding thousands of troops in reserve, he had committed one more corps when Lee's center was breached, or when Burnside's troops were driving toward Sharpsburg. If he had renewed the fighting on the 18th, when Lee had essentially 28,000 infantrymen and McClellan had 30,000 in the positions won the day before and over 26,000 fresh troops. If he had used his personal magnetism to instill a killer instinct in his men. Simply put, George McClellan was so fearful of losing, he refused to risk winning. Yes, a tactical draw. But Lee's retreat provided the impetus for Union strategic victory. And it came not on the battlefield, but in Washington City and not by the firing of thousands of muskets, by simply by the stroke of one pen. On September the 22nd, five days after the battle, Abraham Lincoln, on the impetus of McClellan's confident words that reached him, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It was a mailed fist in a velvet glove. If by January the 1st, 1863, the 11 states that seceded did not return to the Union, there would be no peace with compromise. If they remained outside the Union by the first day of 1863, the powers of the United States government would be broadened. If they did not return, a war for Southern independence would push the United States government to create a revolution against Southern institutions. And Europe would now have to consider a whole new set of parameters. Recognize the South, and therefore recognize slavery. The results of that great and terrible day in Western Maryland pushed the mighty envelope of emancipation. And with that, the country was forever changed. The battlefield today is one of the most pastoral, one of the most beautiful I have ever visited. 
it's a place that seems more suited for landscape artists rather than a stage for human disaster. That great and terrible day was tactically inconclusive, but great and decisive consequences leapt from those 12 hours of concentrated violence. The Confederate summer offensive was unhinged. It gave Lincoln the opening he needed to change the character of the war. And that act, the Emancipation Proclamation, meant that George McClellan's sun began to set. Simply put, there was no room anymore for a military officer who believed in a limited war with limited objectives. And what of the thousands that fought there? Common soldiers who had no idea that where they fought that day would have had such great consequence. But yet, from what they did that day, a national lesson learned. It would take years to fully understand and implement what emancipation truly means. In fact, we're still trying to do just that. But it seems that sadly, great social change can only come about after wallowing in crisis and bloody turmoil. Perhaps it is human nature to be knocked to our knees before we, as a people, as a nation, finally do what we know, deep down, is the right thing to do. On our site, you'll find maps of the battle, early morning phase, late morning phase, afternoon phase, and two suggested works that breathe life to the events of that that occurred on a Wednesday in September 1862. I hope you'll join us next time when we turn to the conflict on the water. We'll spin the story of the 376-ton monster that in 1864 turned federal plans in North Carolina, Virginia, and the entire Eastern Theater on its head. When we next gather, the extraordinary career and unbelievably daring destruction of the Confederate ironclad, the CSS Albemarle. Until then, this is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.